everyone, this is Kara. Hey, it's Chris. And this is the Sausage of Science HB podcast. Good to hear you again, Kara. Nice hearing you. So who do we have on our podcast today, Chris? Uh, we're going to talk to Sharon DeWitt. She's got a recent piece in the Early View for American Journal of Human Biology called Stress, Sex, and Plague, Patterns of Developmental Stress and Survival in Pre- and Post-Black Death London. Cheerful stuff. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. Everybody loves a little black death in their life, um, as long as it's at a, a distance of, say, a few hundred years. Right. So... Um, <laughs> I had to think about that history, didn't you? Yeah. But, you know, um, in the spirit of low-hanging fruit, right, because we're doing this podcast and we want to promote recent publications and our membership and people doing this work, we want to let everybody know that we're not just publicizing our friends. We're just trying to get this off the ground by reaching out to folks who've gotten recent publications who we happen to know. So, and who will likely not say no to us. Exactly. So, but that means if you want to be on this podcast, you should contact us. That's right. That's right. Because eventually we will have to reach out to you. But in the meantime, if you reach out to us, it'll just happen a whole heck of a lot sooner. We only have so many friends. And let's be honest, it's not many. That's the sad state of things. We're very cheerful today. Friends or not, um, and I do believe I can call Sharon a friend. I also was her TA. So Sharon used to be where you now are at SUNY Albany. When I was a grad student there, she was a professor, and that's how I first met her. And then later on, she was the person who I would call or email to cry to when I was needing some, some moral support. So I think she's an amazing person, and I'm really happy to have this opportunity to chat with her on one of our early podcasts. But you haven't had the pleasure, right? I haven't. So this will be my first real meeting, at least I think so, unless I'm forgetting and I might offend her. She's hard to offend. Awesome. Let's bring her in. Hi. Hello. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So Sharon, Kara, Kara, Sharon. Hi. Nice to meet you. You too. So I don't know if you know Sharon, but Kara is presently in the office formerly occupied by Tom Brutzart. Oh. Actually, formerly occupied by Dave Street. Oh, sorry. Okay. Most right. recently. So <laughs> next, next to Tom's old office. Yes. And I have Tom's lab. Oh, nice. With, so. the, with, the, um, with the bathroom? Exactly. Everyone nice. is so jealous of that bathroom. <laughs> yeah. Now that I stock it with like really plush toilet paper, people are like... You let them, them use it? Oh, no. Oh, good. <laughs> I get to use it. Yeah, Chris got you just kind of camped out there, didn't you? But my research assistants are a bit spoiled now because oh, I have nice. nice toilet paper on campus. <laughs> that's awesome. What a way to start an interview. I know. Toilet paper. Well, I mean, that's pretty much par for the course with me. So like, uh -huh. oh, good. great. Bathrooms. Uh, Sarah, I told you she's so very cool and you can't offend her, right? I mean, we've already started with potty talk, so we're yeah. good. Yeah, I am unoffendable. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really happy to be able to talk to you. Yeah, you too. And, and me too, you. towards you. And uh, congrats on the new paper out in the uh, AJHB. I believe it was the September issue yes. or no. Maybe or it was October. October yeah. issue. Yeah. And um, I've got a few questions, but first, for those of the, the, the listeners who haven't read the article, if you could give us a brief synopsis of what you did and what you found and why. Yes. Yeah. So, um, so I'm just going to um, start with the work I'd done prior to this particular paper because it, it, it followed naturally from it. Um, so I'd done, I, I published a paper 
or a, a couple of papers a few years ago looking at demographic trends both before the Black Death and then comparing pre and post Black Death. And I found I found that survivorship, sort sort of demographic trends in general were declining prior to the Black Death, um, and things improved in the aftermath, which I. Um, following conversations I had with Tim Gage many years ago, um, basically I very often take the approach of defining health as not being dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> because also interjection, Tim Gage is also still here at SUNY Albany. I know he is. I love Tim. Um, so I, I mean, I, I work with I work with skeletal remains, and really the only unambiguous thing that you can say about a sample of dead people is that they're dead. Um, and there's a lot of issues with sample bias and things like that in the samples I work with. So I sort of state I start with that with that demographic measure and. Um, the longer people can postpone that ultimate poor health, out, poor health outcome of death, sort of the healthier they were in general. Um, poor health outcome. Poor, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was seeing that survivorship was declining in the 13th century compared to the 11th and 12th centuries, which would suggest that at least at, at the population level, things were declining health-wise before the Black Death. And then I found that um, survivorship and overall risks of mortality, well, survivorship was increasing, risks of mortality were decreasing after the Black Death, at least for a couple of hundred years, which would again suggest um, that there was something happening in terms of health um, and, and specifically that health improved after the Black Death. So I had these population-wide trends and what I wanted to do is start teasing apart some heterogeneity that was existing in the population. And one of the sort of simplest ways of getting at some variation is looking at differences by sex, um, which we can get at fairly accurately from the scalable samples. So I started off by um, looking at survivorship trends for males separate from females. And initially I found that the um, the patterns were consistent with what I found for the pooled sex samples. So everyone looks like they're doing worse prior to the Black Death, but then getting better afterwards. Um, and then what I wanted to do is look at some stress markers, skeletal markers of physiological stress, to see if they tracked along with what I was seeing with the demographic measure of health. Um, and all of the results that I found for males were just sort of lockstep consistent with what I was finding for survivorship. So I was finding, I found that um, these markers of developmental stress for males, there were, the frequency was increasing prior to the Black Death and then decreasing after the Black Death. So there's this nice sort of clear, as clear as we can get in bioarchaeology, clear picture of things declining for males before the epidemic and improving afterwards. But then for females, I was not getting a pattern that really matched with what I was finding for survivorship, and it was different from what I was finding for males. Um, and for me, the most interesting piece of it was that after the Black Death, it looks like if we can accept that long bone length is a good proxy for stature, and it is a good indicator of physiological stress during development, I found that female, well, female long bone length, and thus presumably stature, declined after the Black Death while male stature increased. And at the same time, female survivorship was increasing after the Black Death. So those two things don't really, they're not consistent. Mm -hmm. um, if things were better for females because of improvements in diet and, and 
other things that might have been happening after the epidemic, I would ex I expected that stature would have also increased for females. If survivorship increased, I expected stature too as well. Um, and then I so I was sort of a couple of years or a year ago, I presented this um, these findings as part of a talk that I gave at Tennessee, and there was an epidemiologist in the audience, and she said, "What about menarche?" And as soon as she said that, I, I thought, of course, of course, that is a plausible reason why I'm seeing this disparity in results for females. Um, and so then I, in my paper, I go into some of the evidence that we find for living populations where if you do get improvements in nutritional status, decreases in disease burdens, sometimes what happens is the age at, you know, puberty really, parts of puberty, decline for females. So age at menarche starts to get younger. Um, and there is an association between age at menarche and achieved adult stature in females. So in some populations, but not all, but in some populations, if there are improvements in health that cause a decrease in average age at menarche, there can be a, an effect on stature such that females don't get as tall. So there's sort of this weird thing where for females, what might have been happening is there were improvements in health, there were improvements in diet as a, as a consequence of the Black Death. And because of that, potentially females were reaching menarche at a younger age, but they weren't as tall as they had been in previous generations. So. Yeah. That is, I mean, I love that. When I got to that part of your paper, I was all excited. And there are a couple of reasons why. One is a really big question about that. But the other one is you have a sentence in your introduction talking how a lot of the studies on these past epidemics have been so skewed because a lot of the records really focus on wealthy men. Yes. And so I'm kind of, um, my graduate student came and talked to me about a presentation she did about feminist archeology span and uh -huh. what that oh, means. And I would love to hear your perspective and how difficult it's been to get records to, to, to find out what's going on with women during this yes. time. And if you could just speak to that and feminist bioarchaeology, it'd yes. be great to hear about that. Yeah, so, so, so one of the wonderful things about bioarchaeology is we are, we are able to get information from a huge part of the population that is simply missing from historical documents. And that does include women. So women, poor people of both sexes, um, and children in general, they're just not present in a lot of historical documents, even in places like England, where we have very rich documentary evidence. Um, so it's really, it's, it's a I feel privileged that I get to look at the remains of everyone who was buried in a population, not just the privileged individuals. Um, and so, so that's what we can do with bioarchaeology is basically get the data from people who didn't have a voice in a lot of the written records from the time. Um, and so, um, so there, so there is, we're actually looking at the, at their bodies to have, to get their stories um, that, that we can't get from those records, which are really, really heavily biased towards men and wealthy men. Yeah, that, that, that was just, I loved seeing that because it just made me happy that you're, you're trying to get at that picture. Yes, yeah. So excluded in the past. Yes. And then, yeah, that's the other one. Since you are looking at them biologically, when it comes to skeletal remains, what is the evidence for age of menarche? How do you identify that in a skeletal record? So there is, um, there is a, a bioarchaeologist in the UK, Mary Lewis, who has done some work looking at epiphyseal closure of some of the bones of the hand. And there's other features of the skeleton that, she, that do track um, 
like peak height velocity and other components of puberty, of pubertal changes. Um, and so she and I have been talking to each other about potentially doing an analysis of looking at those skeletal trends in the, the signals of puberty um, to see if, if we actually can detect a decline in the age at, at, at menarche. So what I have found is, well, I've, I've suggested this possible mechanism for the, the results that I'm finding. And the next step really is to see if, given the data that we can get about menarche and about puberal changes in general from the skeletal samples, um, if we can actually find a really strong signal in those data. And um, there is actually, so there's a, um, a historian, Monica Green, at Arizona State, and after my paper was published, she sent me an email. In one of her publications, she, she has, I think it was translated um, from, I don't know, I think she translated it, but there's a historical document that does actually mention, it's a, it's a um, sort of an observation at the time that maybe menarche, that people, that women were hitting menarche at a younger age. So there might be some, hmm. some there actually might be historical evidence to support that. They talked about it. Put it all, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I got very excited. <laughs> That's also a change that should be somehow mentioned that, hey, they talked about women all of a sudden. Yes, yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's great. So do you, is there kind of, because the, the one colleague you were talking about who's been looking at height velocities or growth mm -hmm. velocities and all of that, do you have like a validated collection, like knowing their heights and knowing when they hit uh, the age of menarche and all that to actually put that together? Or is this kind of brand new ground? So I, so I actually, I don't know, and I should know this because I've read her paper, um, I, I think that, yeah, I think that um, these sorts of associations are known from x-ray analyses of mm -hmm. living samples okay. where we do know um, the different stages of puberty. Um, okay. I'm, I, I can't guarantee it, but that's, my, that's what I'm remembering from her paper, which I really should have much, <laughs> much better. No, you're, you're fine. You're fine. Mm -hmm. I can't uh, even remember what my own papers say after yeah. <laughs> So. The moment it's published, it's a mental yeah. dump. Yeah. It's just like, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> Great. All right, so my last question. So it was one of those things that, of course, it makes sense to some degree that health should improve after this massive epidemic. Uh -huh. But you also give a bunch of potential <laughs> reasons why. And are you okay if I list them? Yes, of course. Okay. Um, see if I can. I wrote them down here. Okay. So you have you the robustness of the population after the Black Death. You could say there was some sort of selective power going on there, selecting mm -hmm. for robust individuals. Uh, better environmental conditions. Mm -hmm. um, and then you also had the possibility of migration into these big cities. Yes. How do you tease that apart? Well, luckily NSF has given me money to do that. Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I have a, a project um, that I'm collaborating. I I got NSF um, RC UK funding, so there's a joint mechanism where you can get NSF pays for the US budget and then RC UK pays for the, the, um, the UK budget. So I'm working with Julia Beaumont and Janet Montgomery, both of whom have expertise in isotope um, and so one so Janet does work um, on on mobility isotopes, so strontium, oxygen, and lead. And what we're hoping to do is look across this medieval period in London. So um, from about 1080 up through the Reformation, so 1540. And what I want to do is look at the individuals who, at the very least, what we can say is they are non-locals 
to London. So people who were born and primarily raised elsewhere who migrated into the city later in life, look at what is the survivorship? What is the, the sort of suite of skeletal lesions that we see in people who are non-native to London compared to people who were born and raised and lived there their whole lives? Um, and try to get at, so there's these sort of like two ends of the, of the spectrum in terms of what can happen with migrants. So there's the migrant selectivity hypothesis, the healthy migrant mm-hmm. perspective that people who actually successfully migrate are a, healthy, a, a subset of healthy people. Um, People who get sick along the way tend to go back home or they never start the process of migration. Um, And so it might be that in the medieval period, people who successfully migrated as adults into London were healthier than both people who had been living in London for a long time and the source population. The other possibility is London was a big, densely populated city in the medieval period. Um, And it's possible that there were diseases that were endemic within London that people who migrated from rural areas um, as adults into the city, they were exposed to the first, for the first time to these diseases as adults, so they didn't have immunity that they obtained as child, children. So perhaps they might have been more vulnerable than native Londoners to some diseases that were circulating and therefore might have been at higher risk of death than people who were native to London. Or there could be a combination of those things, <laughs> or it could have changed over time. So we're going to be looking at at the sort of health, and I'm using, for people who aren't seeing my fingers, I'm using massive air quotes about health because <laughs> there's a huge issue with defining health in bioarchaeology. Um, but Not dead. It, yes, so not <laughs> dead. Varieties of not deadness. <laughs> the, so it, it is, we want to look at the association between the, that health-ish things and, um, and migrant status across this medieval period during times of normal mortality, in under conditions of, of plague mortality and also under conditions of famine mortality and see if those relationships, if there is an association, if it, if, if it, if it's consistent across time and across all these different mortality regimes. Um, so hopefully we can start to an- answer that. Um, That's really cool stuff. Um, I think so. Thanks. <laughs> we can talk about the black death and you've roped me in already. Like great. You, don't have to read about it. <laughs> you mentioned black death. Um, that's all the questions I have. Chris, anything from you? I just have one, uh, you, th- this trade-off fascinates me. Mm-hmm. So if you're seeing earlier age menarche and they're shorter, mm-hmm. are we assuming that's because they are starting to become pregnant? Is there a parturition relationship here or do we know? Well, that's the, that's the other, that's the rub. Okay. So, so presumably from an evolutionary perspective, if you have well-fed, low disease load females, they're going to be putting on enough fat stores. Presumably this is also, they're in a good environment so they can start reproducing and they can have healthy children. So we can sort of make up this like just so story about why it makes sense for menarche and to be younger. Were they actually reproducing at an earlier age? In some cases, almost certainly not. And that's because after the Black Death, because of the labor shortage, women were moving into occupations that they weren't that weren't available to them prior to the Black Death. They were earning wages at a higher rate than had been than had, than had occurred before. And in some parts of Europe, after the Black Death, that's when they adopted the Euro, the so-called European marriage pattern, which is delayed age at marriage. Mm-hmm. Part of it is delayed age at marriage. There's other aspects of it. Um, so you have reduced, possibly reduced age at menarche, which means they could start reproducing earlier, but then this marriage pattern where women 
are delaying the age, well, both men and women are delaying the age of marriage. And in, in some cases, um, young people are not getting married at all. So you have fewer mm-hmm. people getting married and people who are getting married, they tend to get married at later ages. And this is, it's one possible explanation for why the European population took so long to recover after mm-hmm. the Black Death. Um, so you have repeated outbreaks of, of plague, but also you have this effect of, you know, when, when in many cases where, when people delay the age of marriage, they're also delaying the age of first reproduction. So if, if more people are getting married later, they're shortening that reproductive lifespan. So there, so I don't, that was a very long winded way of saying, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's fascinating because we're always trying to parse out these biocultural and evolutionary mm-hmm. stories but we often forget to add the political economy. Yep. Onto yes. And people's player. agency about, you know, now I actually, I can, I'm not beholden to the Lord of the manor that my parents and my grandparents have lived on. I can move to a city. I can be a beer brewer. I can make my own money. I can negotiate wages in a way that wasn't possible before. All of those things are happening and, and, and happening in a much um, broader way for for women than had had been true at any point prior to that. So, yeah. So I mean, this is a there's this is one of the things that's so great about this time period. Is all these amazing changes. It also makes it really hard to interpret the data. <laughs> but it's a it's a it's an area of history, as Karen pointed out. That's I don't know if it's a macabre fascination, but it's a really rich it's a rich period. And uh, you know, I, I won't go on, but I think we love medieval Renaissance mm-hmm. uh, yes. story. <laughs> and history, and I'll finish by saying thank you for doing the hard awesome work. work. So yeah, we thank you so much. the story. Thank you. Well, thank you for reading it. <laughs> so. How can people get in touch with you to learn more? Do you have a Twitter, Facebook? So I am website? slowly, I'm slowly <laughs> shedding my innate old ladiness, <laughs> old personness. I am trying to get more involved on Twitter. I love email. I love it when people send me emails. I'm very happy to field questions via email. I have a WordPress website that you can you can access either directly through WordPress or through my faculty website. And I post my I post my articles there. Uh, I post articles, links to the abstracts, and then and then I basically like give things a year, and then I make the PDFs freely available. Um, so if people don't want to actually interact with me, but they want to get access to my my research, I do make that available to people. Okay, oh, that's wonderful. We'll post all those links to our show notes Great. so people can learn more. And thank you. Thank yeah, you. So thank much. you so much. And will I see you at the AAAs next week or the week after? Will not. No, me neither. But we'll be in Austin, Texas in okay, April. Good. I will be there too. All right, we'll get a beer. All right, sounds great. All right. <laughs> thank, you. thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. This has been the Sausage of Science with Chris and Kara. Stay tuned. Next episode, we will finally get to part two of the Nina Jablonski piece where you hear her lecture at the University of Alabama.